Welcome to The Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as I do each and every week. This is episode 110. I hope everybody's having a fantastic week out there. Uh, Don't know what the weather's like in your neck of the woods, but fall has finally arrived here in the bluegrass state. Uh, Just my favorite time of the year. Just love it. College football going on, uh, albeit uh, a a little subdued. Uh, But everything's going well. We've got a great episode for you today. I'm going to take this opportunity right at the top to remind you again, uh, if you're not a member over at the wonderful Drum Forum, uh, ghostnote.net, I encourage you to go over there, sign up, hang out with us, uh, talk about building drums, uh, lots of humor. It's a good place to hang out. Uh, I stop in uh, about every other day and, uh, you know, make some posts. So if you're not a member over there, I do encourage you to do so. As I mentioned, we have a great episode for you today. We're going to be joined by just a wonderful man, wonderful drummer making his home down in Nashville. Mark Pazapia is going to be my guest right after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, uh, we're about to be joined by Mark Pazapia, uh, who, as I mentioned, makes his home down in Nashville nowadays. Uh, Mark has spent quite a few years playing with Josh Rouse, uh, but he has just a, a, a tremendous um, discography. He has done records with Chuck Prophet, with Dave Mead, uh, Kelly Willis, KD Lang. Uh, he's played with just some uh, amazing folks, and not only is he a great drummer, 
performer. He's a really good singer as well. And, uh, you know, once again, you know, I'm going to give thanks to the Minneapolis connection. Uh, You know, we uh, we got this recommendation uh, from our pal Dave Kirby to uh, get Mark on the show. So very glad to have him on. So please help me welcome to the drum shuffle, Mark Pazapia. Hey, good morning, Mark. How's it going, brother? Great. How are you doing, Jamie? Man, I you know, I, I cannot complain. Um, as we're recording this, you know, we're still in the midst of, uh, you know, this uh, coronavirus global pandemic. You are sitting in the music city, Nashville, Tennessee, probably with not a lot to do. Am I am I correct in <laughs> saying that? Uh, yeah, pretty much. You know, I mean, fortunately, I've been I've been doing some tracks from home during the during the lockdown so that's been that's been good keeping busy with that but otherwise not much else happening yeah people are, it, trying, to, people are trying to storm the the, the honky tonks downtown and trying to fight the city to perform <laughs> and you know it's, it's a mess but i understand people's frustrations and wanting to get out and play for sure but i'm not sure that now is yet the right time Yeah, well, I mean, you know, this conversation has been had amongst many musicians, you know, we're all going to be the last folks to to get back to work, you know, whether it's a musician, an actor in a theater troupe, you know, ballet companies, that's going to be, you know, the the last thing to come back because, you know, I understand you don't want to put 5,000 people in a room together. That that doesn't seem smart to me, but I'm no scientist, so. I know, me either, but it doesn't seem smart to me either. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't know, you know, in, in my area, in central Kentucky, you know, some of the clubs have been permitted to open back up at a limited capacity, you know, 30% mm-hmm. or, or something small, And, you know, I I don't know very many of my local musician friends that would want to book a gig where it's going to be limited to 30 percent of capacity, you know, because, you know, that's cutting into the pocketbook, obviously, uh, for musicians. And everybody wants a packed crowd when they play. Exactly. I know it's a frustrating it's a frustrating uh, dilemma because, you know, you want to. We all want to play. It's part of our part of what keeps us sane and healthy and moving forward. But you know, it's the diminishing returns of playing to small crowds and having to lug your stuff all across town to play a gig that's going to be less than exciting and you know, yeah, and less than profitable. But it's just kind of, it's better to stay home at this point. And, safe i think yeah it's 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 not a good uh, good equation for us but uh but anyway I, you know I, as is you know kind of our tradition here on the drum shuffle i i do want to back up and kind of start at the beginning um you're originally a new jersey native talk to us a little bit about your early years and and how you got into music and drumming to begin with if you don't mind sure no problem yeah, so like you said, uh, you know, I'm from New Jersey originally. I basically uh, grew up in the armpit just across from Staten Island. And uh, it was the 1970s, you know, and everybody had a band in their garage. And, you know, classic rock, which was not classic at that point, was <laughs> king. And, you know, and uh, and there was music everywhere. And, you know, I can't say that, I can't say that our parents were very musical, but 
they uh, they bequeathed my brother and I with a box of really great forty fives from their from their heyday, and we just devoured all of it, and then just started you know buying records from there. And we had older cousins who were very you know. They, were, they had great musical tastes, and they were very encouraging. And would you know, our grandmother would buy us records at Christmas time. She, you know, she had no idea what this you know Pink Floyd record was, but she'd go to <laughs> Sam Goody and grab it. And, you know, my cousin would be like, "Oh, you need to check this out. Check this out." You know, and so you know, I, I basically started playing in bands when I was like ten. I started. I was singing for my brother's band. He he started playing guitar at an early age and was getting really, really good at it. And, uh, in grammar school, you know, his last couple of years, he had a band with some friends and I ended up singing for them. And, uh, and then, you know, I would, I would, I would be, I would get a little bit frustrated because the drummer, I could tell was not like, you know, he was missing some of the details on some <laughs> of the parts, but, but I, I wasn't a drummer per se, but I knew I was like, that's not the intro to spirit of radio. It's different, you know? And so when we'd finish rehearsing, those guys would go upstairs and I would stick downstairs in the drum kit for like another hour by myself and just work these things out and kind of almost see if I could figure them out by myself and maybe clue him into what he was missing. But I don't think he caught on, but, and then, uh, you know, when I was in like, I don't know, fourth grade, I wanted to take drum lessons. And, but my parents refused they, to buy me a drum set that wasn't going to be part of the deal. And so I had got, I'd gotten a pair of sticks and a, you know, a, what do you call it? You know, practice pad and was working out rudiments that my dad taught me. He was in the drum and bugle corps when he was younger. So he taught me a few rudiments. And I got started with that and then I got kind of frustrated with it and moved on. And, and then uh, I sang for another band later years in, in grammar school. And then, you know, when I was getting into high school, you know, I, I basically, our, so our dad owned an Italian deli in, in the town next door to where we grew up. And we worked there, my brother and I, since, you know, I started working when I was 12, basically, or, or even younger than that. But when I was 12, it was basically on, you know, it was like just about every day, you know, five, six days a week, whatever. And, and so when I was going into high school, I really wanted to pick up the drums again. And mainly with the idea of like, well, my brother's getting really good and, you know, I love the drums and maybe, maybe we could be like the next Van Halen or something, you know, so, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> which was huge for me at the time. And so, uh, but again, my parents, you know, I started taking lessons and my parents were like, well, we're not going to buy you a drum set. And I was like, well, what's the point, you know? And, and they're like, well, we're not going to buy you a drum set because you, you, you don't stick with anything. You, you know, you quit before, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, but this is different. You know, I argue back and forth and. And then finally, I was just like, well, forget it. I'm just going to buy my own drum set. I'm working, you know, save up. And so, um, so yeah, I was taking drum lessons with this guy for a while. And, you know, he, we were doing rudiments and everything. And, and then he, he started to push towards, you know, you know, trying to sell me on the idea of buying a drum set. And probably largely because he was kind of partaking a commission if, if sold, you know, and, but I was like, okay, you know, now it's time. So I saved up and, and bought this kit. And, you know, as soon as I bought it, I, I wasn't even, I wasn't even prepared. I was like, wait, what, what do you mean? It doesn't come with a stool. It doesn't come with symbols. I was so, so green, you know, yeah. but fortunately my dad was there and he was like, ah, he coughed up for a stool and some hi hats and got started. And then I went back to lessons and the, the teacher was just kind of like, well, now it's just, you know, you got to, 
you got to sit on the kit and just kind of work your way around it and kind of learn how to learn how to learn the dynamics, learn how to play it, learn how to reach everything. And, and really it just takes repetition and sitting and learning songs. And he's like, you know, I have students come in that want me to teach them songs, but that's not really what I'm here for. And this and that. And, and so with that, I just kind of was like, well, okay, so I guess I don't really need this anymore. And I quit lessons and started to just, you know, practice on my own. And largely because, you know, between work and school and everything else, I didn't really have time to do, to be continuing with lessons. I kind of I do regret it later in life, but, but you know, I, I just wanted to get up and get playing and get in a band. And, and I met these guys in high school early on uh, who had a band, and they, you know, they were picking around, well, you play drums? Well, maybe you should come over and jam sometimes. I went over and jammed with them, and they were great. The one guitar player, just like, he could do everything Eddie Vedder could do at age 14. I mean, he was playing Eruption like it was nothing. And, you know, and so I would go over to his house. It was really sweet Puerto Rican family, like three generations living in the house. And we would sit up in their living room and make a racket for five or six hours in an afternoon. And, and this is before I even had my own drum kit. And, and then, you know, right when I got my drum kit, they handed me an, uh, you know, a 90 minute cassette tape front and back full of like all this heavy metal that I really hadn't really, you know, dove into at that point. I was into like the police and squeeze and brush, you know, and Pink Floyd or whatever, but you know, now they're, now they're throwing Iron Maiden and Metallica, nice. Metallica at me and all this stuff. Yeah. So it was like, you know, okay, well I just ran the tape back and forth and learned everything. And that kind of, that's kind of how I got started. And then we started playing and we actually would compete against my brother's band, battles of the bands and whatnot. And we actually won against them, which was, kind of a ripoff because they were a much better band than we were, but we were giving the people more of what they wanted. And, uh, you know, and so anyway, so from there, you know, just kept playing, you know, and then went to college. I actually didn't want to go to college. I wanted to try and convince my parents that I just wanted to go out and play. And they were like, well, you know, you need to get an education (laughs) first. (laughs) And I was like, all right, you know, and so I went, uh, went off to school in upstate New York and uh, after my freshman year, you know, there really wasn't, there really wasn't a music scene happening there at all. It was kind of a, kind of a bummer. My brother, where he went to school in Pennsylvania, they had a really cool scene. It was a really small private school, but everybody, it was like, it was like a John Hughes movie every time I would go visit. I mean, it was like <laughs> college radio central and all these bands and everybody with asymmetrical haircuts and wearing Paisley and, smoking pipes and, you know, and, and, and I got turned out of all this great music, you know, REM, Psychedelic Furs, Cure. And, you know, when I was at my college, it was, you know, it was like, it was kind of a little bit more meathead, you know? Yeah. But, so I was home for break on Thanksgiving that my sophomore year, and I was, I was talking to my brother about it. I was like, maybe you should just bring your drums back to school. Maybe something will happen. You never know. Something will happen. Kind of like if you build it, they will come. And, and so I packed everything up and drove, back up to go back to school after the break and, and as I was walking through the breezeway this guy's like hey man you play drums I play bass and it was this guy James Haggerty this guy Hags who it ended up we're still playing together 30 years later he was like one of the first uh, rhythm section partners I had growing up and we've stuck with it for a long time and it's been a very interesting and uh, long enduring relationship but yeah. so anyway we did this we did the band thing in college and then I graduated 
I almost chose not to graduate. So my brother had his band out in Pennsylvania was doing really well. They had they had their own you know original music and they were recording a lot and they had a really cool scene and they were they were kind of yeah they had a nice little buzz going in Central Pennsylvania and I was convinced that they were going to get signed and I was you know I was going to. I was gonna miss the boat, and, you know. He's gonna be a huge star. And I'm gonna be stuck in college. And right before my senior year, he called me and said that their drummer was leaving, and they they wanted me to come join the band. And so I was. It was like two weeks before school, and I was like stuck with the decision: like, do I finish college or do I go join his band or whatever? And, but I was like, man, I got too much invested in this. I got one year left. Let me just finish and see where we're at afterwards, you know. And, and so you know, I did whatever and. And then I moved back home after college for a little bit and started playing some bands around New York City and stuff and met some good friends that I'm still connected with today. And and then somewhere along the line, about a year, a little after, maybe like a little over a year after being home, my brother called and was like, you know, he had left the whole band that he was in and wanted to record a record of his own and, and asked me to join him. And so we got together and we, worked out these parts in the basement and then went out to his friend's house in uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, who had his own like little home studio. And we cut this record there. It was, it was really adventurous. You know, he hired a a local, like there's one guy in town that played pedal steel and he was a luthier and kind of a, you know, kind of a conservative older guy, but you know, and we threw all this stuff at him. The music was kind of like, I don't know, it was kind of all over the place, very beatly, but very, um, uh, also some big star influence and stuff. And, and, you know, so we made this record with all these weird pedal steel parts that this guy played that, you know, he didn't really know what we were going for, but his parts were excellent, you know, and, and we kind of stumbled upon this sound and, and, uh, a friend that we were working with on the side recommended we send a, a copy to his friend, who's a music critic and, journalist down in Memphis, a guy named Rick Clark. And uh, not long after, we got a call from him. He really loved his stuff. We started having long conversations with him. And then my brother was like, well, let's go down and meet this guy. You know, let's take a trip down to Tennessee. And so on the way to, to Memphis, he was in Nashville on business. We stopped in Nashville and hung out here a couple of days. And we were staying with his friend, George Bradley, this guy from Memphis, who's like a, he's called the Tone Chaperone. He's, he's like a, like a, genius musician with two of every of the best amps, guitars, basses, you know, like <laughs> everything you could want, you know, it yeah. has smelled like transistors and tubes. And we stayed there a couple of days and just kind of fell in love with, town, with the town, you know, Nashville is a, is a strange vortex because, you know, it wasn't really on my radar to, it wouldn't have necessarily been on my radar at that time to necessarily visit if I took a cross country trip, no disrespect. You know, we didn't really grow up with a lot of country music by any means, you know, we only got the dribble down crossover stuff, the, you know, islands in the stream and the, yeah. the gambler and whatever. And, uh, and so, but we just fell in love with Nashville and decided, you know, pretty quickly, like, let's just move down there, you know? And so within well, a couple it, months, we packed everything up and just moved down. Yeah. Not to interrupt, but what, what time period is this? Is this early nineties or yeah, it was it was ninety three. Okay, because well, yeah. when you said you know pedal steel and we kind of stumbled upon this sound, I mean that was kind of when 
um, you, you know, Americana music or, or the no depression movement was kind of, you know, surging into, uh, you know, I, I guess the, uh, the collective conscience, uh, you know, of the country, you know, you had bands like, you know, Uncle Tupelo had just split up and, and, you know, Jay Farrar formed Sunvolt and, you know, Jeff Tweedy went on to form Wilco. And, you know, so when you said that, I thought, man, this is probably right about the same time. Exactly. And, you know, we weren't really, you know, at the time, that stuff really wasn't on our radar just yet. We we were just, my brother just had this thing, He you know, it was like, he had a sound that he wanted to hear. And it was kind of, an, it was basically what has become Americana, you know, it was like, and I think it's just the zeitgeist of the time, you know, like he just was tapped into, you know, what was coming next, you know, we lucked out getting in on the front door of that, but, but still his music was, was different enough that it wasn't really, you know, nobody could really categorize it. What it was, it, you know, it was like, and, they, and Americana hadn't really been defined as such at that point, you know, right, so right. it was like, people didn't know what to make of it. It's like, well, it's not country. It's not pop. It's not, you know, it's not hip hop. It's not rock. <laughs> right. You know, it's it? nothing. It's, right. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. But well, it was, it was interesting being on that curve too, though, like you said. Yeah. Well, and you also mentioned big star, which, you know, I, I mean, I, when I talk to somebody that's a non-musician and I mention big star, they're like, who, you know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. the, it, the general public has no idea who that is, but every musician goes, Oh my God, I, that record is so amazing. And, and, you know, I lived in Absolutely. Memphis, you know, for a couple of years, you know, right after high school. And, you know, that was the thing that everybody wanted to replicate at that time in the mid nineties. If you were in Memphis, it was like the lore of big star, right? You, you, Absolutely. you wanted to do that record. And, you know, I think it really, everybody aspiring to that really created the Americana movement, you know, but I, I guess that conversation is for a different day, but you know, being on the front end of that, um, you know, and obviously you've made quite a career playing Americana music. So, you know, not to interrupt your story, but I just, I wanted to no, give no. a little context around that. Sure. Sure. Appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, you know, that stuff was all that music, you know, the big star and, you know, NRBQ, all these, all these underrated, really musical bands that, you know, kind of, you know, kept the Beatle tradition, but took it, took it in a more American direction, you know, and, yeah. and, 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 and put a, put a stamp on it. That was so unique that like, it's unfortunate that it never got its proper respect or, or notability, you know, yeah. but at the same time, it, the unadulterated quality of it is what, what is what, you know, is so, so, you know, uh, gravitational toward it, you know, it just pulls you right in because it's not like anything that you expect it to be, you know, and that's what, that's really where we were coming from, you know, and in, in all honesty, like all the bands that I've ever really liked the most were the ones that kind of, that kind of carved their own path, whether it was with huge success or pop stuff or without it, you know, I just liked the bands that had their own little insular universe, you know, that no matter what anybody else was doing, they were going to do their thing. You know, I was a big rush fan as most drummers probably are. Yeah. 
and uh, then R.E.M. and uh, Smiths and The Cure. I mean, all these, you know, all these bands that just created their own universe. I mean, you know, even now, you know, I, I, I do some playing with uh, a great, amazing guitar player named Reeves Gabrels, who, you know, was in Tin Machine with David Bowie, but now he's in The Cure as the lead guitar player. And, you know, so I've gotten to, to go to a few shows and hang out with them, and it's just, it's amazing seeing these guys you know, 30 or 40 years later, still like two and a half hours of just every song, you know, them, whether or not you had the albums or yeah. whether or not, you know, you were proxy to that music, you know? And anyway, that's a whole sidebar, but well, I mean, yeah. I, I, I will say this, you know, my wife, um, whom I've been married to for 20 years, I would say the cure is probably her all time favorite band. And, you know, when I first met her, of course, I was, you know, I I knew who the cure was, but I was like, well, that's that weird guy that wears black lipstick, you know? And I I mean, that's, (laughs) that's kind of the only thing I knew, you know, I mean, I knew their music, but being, you know, kind of um, immersed into that through my wife, I was like, you know, Robert Smith is a genius. I mean, that guy, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do this, right? I I mean, he just nailed down to the floor. This is what we're about. And like you said, you you may not know it's a cure song, but when it comes on, you're like, oh, wow, I know this song. This is a great song. You know, I mean, the guy just, I I don't know. It just flows out of him. It's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, totally, totally. And and even today, I mean, it's just like, you know, he's still such a great, singer and great musician and, 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 and just a sweet, really approachable person, which I wouldn't have expected. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you, you would think that he would be a little bit prickly, but you know, I've always heard the same thing that he's just one of the most gracious, kind human beings alive. Yeah, totally. And, and, you know, the cool thing is, is just knowing a little bit of the inside of that, of that whole operation. It, it's such a really, you know, uh, democratic run organization and everybody is so well taken care of. There's so little ego or, you know, or hierarchy, you know, inside the operation. It's just, it's really, it's, to me, it's the, it's the ultimate success, you know, To 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 be able to have that kind of success and be, you know, without, with or without, you know, the, the, the machine at your side at all times, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, so, you know, after you're, you know, falling in love with Nashville, you know, to kind of go back to that story, you know, I know that you still work with your brother and, you know, I caught a video recently of you guys singing together. You know, it wasn't even a video of you playing drums. It was you and your brother singing together. And, you know, you, you can always, at least I can, I can always tell in harmony singing when somebody is related. I I don't know what it is, but there's something about the harmonizing with a sibling or a cousin, or, or you can always tell when folks have grown up together. Yeah. There's something, you know, there, there really is something to the genetic harmony that is so valuable. And, you know, it's, it's special, you know, and, and the thing is like, you know, so, to sort of, you know, meander about really quickly, you know, we ended up doing our first record. Well, 
the record we did in Pennsylvania never really got released. It just became something that we passed around to friends and used to get gigs and try to get some promotion, whatever. But Rick Clark ended up producing our first record that we released, and we we did it with him at Ardent, which was a huge, you know, great studio, great studio. Yeah, yeah I mean, it just, I mean, that was that was literally my second. Well, it was my second time in a proper recording studio recording, you know, and, and the fact that it was ardent, we did half the record in the A room and half the record in the C room. And, uh, it was just, it was mind blowing, you know, it was, it was so, such an amazing experience. And, and, you know, Jody Stevens was there and he would pop in, you know, cause he was, you know, he runs a lot of the stuff out of the studio and he was running the label at the time. And it was just, it was such a huge mind blowing experience, but we did half the record. And I didn't sing on anything. And then, like, you know, somewhere between, you know, we took a break between cutting the second half, and my brother and I started doing these little, pop, like, this, these little acoustic songwriter things, and I started just throwing in some harmonies. And then Rick was like, you know, you got a really good voice. You guys should, you know, you guys should figure out how to use this, you know? Like, let's figure out how to capitalize this. So I ended up singing on the second half of the record, and it was such a such a joy for me because like that was always something that I always really wanted to be part of the singing, you know, and that's how I started out was singing lead for bands, you know? So being able to, to have that and develop that through the years has been such a, such a privilege and, and such a treat. And even, even now at our age, it's like whenever we get the opportunity to do it, you know, it's just such a soulful, beautiful experience, you know, that you, with or without any audience or any kind of reaction or response, just the, the vibration of doing it is, yeah. you know. Well, and, you know, having good chops as as a singing drummer, uh, you know, that casts a whole lot wider net, <laughs> you know, for potential <laughs> gigs. I mean, you know, if, you, yeah. if, if you're out touring with a band and it's, you know, I'm putting together a four-piece band, having a drummer that can sing good harmonies, wow, that puts you on a short list, right? Yeah, I think so. It's definitely helped for sure. And, you know, and any, and any, you know, and anything you can do to make yourself even more valuable is a plus, you know, and singing is, is definitely a plus, you know, I mean, when I do, when I do gigs with other artists, you know, it's not something that I offer up immediately unless they ask, you know, cause it, it, you know, it's usually like, Hey, we're gonna have one rehearsal if, and then do this gig. And so, you know, the vocals to me at that point are secondary. You know, it's like, I just, my main focus is I got to make sure the drums are correct, you know? And but once, once we're inside of it, if they say, Hey, you know, do you want to sound? Like, yeah, sure. But yeah. you know, as long as I have the drums mapped out and, you know, <laughs> yeah, well, sure. <laughs> I know I mean, what I'm doing there. Then, then, then it's like, sure. Have, let's have that, you know? Yeah. Well, and you know, you mentioned some other artists and I know we're jumping around all over the place and I apologize for that. But no, no. This is such a great conversation. I want to make sure that I get some of this stuff in here. You know, when I was looking through your discography, you know, as I mentioned to you, I, I wasn't, I didn't think I was familiar with your career or your playing, but as I looked through the discography, I was like, oh yeah, I've definitely heard Mark's playing a, a bunch of times, you know, um, Kelly Willis, uh, Katie Lang, uh, Chuck Prophet, I, I saw in there. Um, did did yeah. I see Dave Mead maybe? Yeah, um, Dave Yeah, so, I mean, you know, you've played with a lot of, you know, uh, shall we say name brand artists, 
Um, that's got to be pretty amazing. I mean, did, did you pinch yourself at all when you were like, man, I'm playing with Katie Lang? I mean, seriously. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that was that was huge. Yeah, of course. And I mean, Chuck Prophet. I mean, come on, man. I mean, that's that's pretty, pretty legendary stuff. Yeah, well, thank you, man. You know, and it's, you know, it's just, uh, Chuck is such a great, great person. Uh, you know, we're, we're still great buds to this, to this day. In fact, we just, before the lockdown, you know, in January, we had just done a, a tour together. Um, not, I wasn't playing with him, but I, I played with the owner's name, Josh Rouse. He's another one that I've, he's, I've done probably most of my work touring and recording with Josh Rouse through, through the last 15 years, 18 years. Okay. And, and in fact, that's kind of what led to, that's kind of what led to, to the Chuck thing. I'm not, I'm kind of, I kind of can't remember exactly, but a, a, a producer friend of mine that I did a lot of work with, Roger Mutino, called me in to come do some stuff on Chuck's record. And we just hit it off. And then, you know, we started visiting. You know, if I was in San Francisco, we'd visit, or if he was in town, we'd get together. And, and then he, the Kelly Willis record came about because he produced that record and, and invited me to come down to Austin to play on it, which nice. was a great, yeah. great experience. Yeah. And then the Katie Lang thing, you know, so I, you know, I was, my brother and I were huge Katie Lang fans. In fact, like I was just telling somebody recently, like, you know, when we first moved here and we weren't doing much. I, you know, I would sit in the afternoons and draw and just kind of listen to music and just kind of meditate, whatever. And I, I had like drawn, the Katie Lang Shadowland cover in a sketchbook of mine, you know, and it's like, and then whatever, cut to 20 years later, my brother, uh, he had been working with, he, he worked with a band called Guster for a long time. And the front of house sound guy from that band was working with Katie Lang and passed the music on to her. And they started having you know, chats and whatever. And then she was like, well, I want to come to Nashville and just throw something down. And he had just built his studio. It wasn't even, it was like nothing had happened in there yet. And uh, he called me up and said, hey, man, can you come do this session with Katie Lang in a couple days? I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I'm busy that day. You know, I, I, yeah, yeah. I'm going to Home Depot to get some plants for the backyard. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing was I was in the middle of a major kitchen remodel at this house. That my ex and I <laughs> no had. way. And, yeah, and, and, you know, and I, it, it had been months, you know, and I hadn't, I hadn't even really touched drums, you know, and I was like, oh man, like I gotta, I gotta snap out of this and get into <laughs> drum mode quickly, you know? And yeah, it was, it was definitely, it was definitely a, a trip because like, so he, his studio has, it, it's kind of like a, a long uh, building with, with a big high ceiling cutting room in the middle and then, you know, flanked by two lofts on either side. And on the one side, the loft has the, the vocal booth in it with a big glass you know, window facing out into the, into the room. And so literally she was bird's eye view over my shoulder the entire time. And I could feel her stare, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And, uh, and it was, it was just like from from the minute we, you know, we started recording and just hearing her voice come through, like, you know, on on every take, you know, it was just like, it just, it it was giving me chills, you know, like, you know, it's amazing, but yeah, it was a real treat to do that. for sure. I mean, you know, I, I think most drummers, you know, I, I mean, I can only speak for myself, so I'm not going to say most drummers. I'm going to say this drummer, okay. you, you know, I, I would be thrilled to have 
any one of those opportunities. I mean, I would be like, well, you know, I, I can die satisfied now. I played with Chuck or I played with Kelly Willis or I played with Katie Lang. You know, when you start adding all those things together, you know, it, you know, I, I can only imagine that, you know, that's something to really hang your hat on, so to speak, you know, and, and having one of those opportunities probably leads to another, as you kind of explained. Um, but having these things on your resume can't hurt. No, no, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, not, <laughs> not to put you on the spot or anything, but I mean, you know, if you and I were both looking at the same gig, we're both eyeballing it, you know, I don't have Chuck on my resume. I don't have Katie Lang on my resume. As soon as you say that, everybody goes, well, if it's good enough for Katie Lang, you know, th this guy passes the smell test. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and yet at the same time, being here in Nashville, it's like, you know, that's just another, that's just another, yeah. that's just any old <laughs> yeah, well, story, you know? I, I mean, I've made the joke, I don't know how many times, if you go into, you know, an Applebee's in Nashville and order a cheeseburger, the guy that brings it to your table is probably the greatest guitar player you've never heard. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So. And that was one of the things that struck, struck us immediately when we got here, you know, like, um, you know, being around the New York music scene and stuff, it was great. A lot of rock and roll, a lot of punk rock, a lot of edgy stuff, a lot of freaky stuff, you know. But, like, the first few nights that we went out in town, you know, it's just like, you know, some of the music wasn't necessarily my style or my preference, but the players, the, the musicianship was just amazing, you know. And, and I remember very early on, I, I thought, like, all right, every time I go out, I have to pay attention because every, every, it's a lesson yeah. every time. You know, and, and also just like, if this is the pool that you're walking into, you have to be, you have to be at that level stepping in, you know? Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's, that, that's a big, kind of like a, a psychological jump, you know? But it was, but the music scene here is so supportive and so friendly and, you know, in, in general, you know, and so, um, I don't know, just amicable that, you know, you feel part of something rather than you're fighting against it, you know? Yeah. Well, um, I, I, that's one of the cool things about Nashville is, you know, it, it, if you have that network, you know, it's like, well, I can't do the gig, but my buddy Mark might be available. You know, that, that stuff happens all the time down there. And, exactly. And, you know, the, the, you know, I guess a lot of people, when you talk about the Nashville music scene, of course, they just automatically think of lower Broadway or whatever, you know, the, the bar bands and, and all that stuff. Right. And, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but any one of those bars that you walk into, it's going to be a very polished, um, uh, you know, band that you're seeing. Everybody is an A player that plays those gigs. And, you know, case in point, you know, I was in Nashville on business a few years ago and on a Monday night, I just kind of wobbled into Robert's Western world and mm -hmm. the guy playing drums in that band that night was Willie Cantu from Buck Owens and the Buckaroos. You, you, oh, yeah. you know what I'm saying? And it's like, holy cow, man. I mean, it's just like everybody is a royalty level player everywhere you go. 
Amen. Amen. And, 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 you know, and, and also like, like just even for, take that for example, it's like, you know, there's an, there's a certain sort of like egoless blue collar mentality about music where it's like, you know, these people have done amazing things and yet they, they still want to go out and play <laughs> right. a bar gig for two and a half hours or whatever it is, you know, yeah, just man. because they want to play and they want to be in the mix and they, you know, they love it. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, well, I mean, guys, when they come home from uh, from their tour, you know, they can only sit around for, <laughs> you know, three or four days. You know, I just did 200 days straight with, you know, I don't know, Toby Keith or Travis Tritt or whatever the case may be. After two or three days, you'll see those guys filtering into the bars to sit in because, like you said, man, they just want to play. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and it's just such a great hang, you know. I mean, you know, I, I, I I'm fortunate. I play in a, in a, in a. We haven't really done it in a little while. I'll kind of take a break, but we have this uh, this band called the Sons of Zevon, and it and it started as like, um, you know, a bunch of a bunch of friends in the neighborhood just wanting to kind of. It, there's a there was a friend of ours on on the venue called the Family Wash, and at the original place, it was really small, you know, small stage, but it was, it was just like where everybody hung out when they were off the road and, you know, just tell stories and regale each other with, you know, road stories and <laughs> yeah. studio stories. And, and, you know, and out of that, all these different projects popped up. And one of them was this thing called Sons of Zevon, which was, had nothing to, it started originally, they started doing Warren Zevon covers. And, uh, you know, and then it morphed into, we would basically take, you know, we would start with a year like 1970 and take, 25 of a, a wide variety of stuff from that chart from that year and learn them and do those, you know, and do a, a, a night, you know, 1970. And then the next time it would be 71. And we did it all the way through the decade of the seventies. And we realized like, that's pretty much as far as you want to go. There's nothing in the eighties that would be suitable for the band. But anyway, but the point was, and, you know, and Fred Eltringham, another great national drummer who I know you've interviewed. Yeah. He was the original drummer, but he was so busy that, and I was playing, I got called in to play percussion with them on the side when, when we would do it. And then he got so busy that I ended up taking the seat. And, but just to be able to play with these players and singers, you know, I mean, you know, like, uh, Peter Francis sat in with us one night, you know, and, and the same night, uh, uh I can't his name, but, uh, yeah, but just you know, like the the the, the amount of, of of musicianship on stage and and the willingness to just have a good time to perform, just have fun playing songs, it's just such a great great opportunity and great great memories and great experiences, you know, and 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 that's that's what you get in Nashville, you know. Yeah, Mark Ford, that that was the other one. Oh yeah, yeah, man, I, Black Crows, and yeah, I mean, what what an amazing musician that guy is. Um, I know, wait, I'm, I'm confused. I'm sorry. Not, not Mark Ford, Robin Ford. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I was getting ready <laughs> to say, yeah, okay. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's like the same night, Robin Ford and and, uh, and your boy. It was just like mind-blowing, you know? But, yeah, wow. I mean, it just, I, I guess being there all the time, you know, I, I guess if you're not ready, you know, you were talking about that psychological step. I, I, I I can only surmise that if you're not ready for that, it can be pretty dejecting, you know, and, and like, wow, I'm never going to get a gig, <laughs> you know, if, if you're not ready yeah. for that level of competition. 
But, you know, I'm curious, you know, um, when, you know, the end of the world is over, you know, what's next? I mean, what do you have coming up or have you been able to make any plans for the, for the rest of the year and, and into the future? I mean, are you are you continuing, you know, to work with the same, you know, artists that you've been working with? Are you branching out? What's, you know, what's on the horizon for you? Well, at the moment, it's pretty wide, wide open, you know. Um, you know, I was supposed to do some touring with Josh Rouse in April. That got canceled, obviously, and then it was going to be rescheduled for September or October, but I don't, I'm pretty sure it's, that's canceled again. And, and uh, at the moment, I have one gig on the books in December. <laughs> I told the guy, like, get me the tunes immediately. Like, I'm gonna, I got to learn them now, you know, because... <laughs> But, but yeah, so, I mean, you know, everything is pretty much at a standstill and, you know, I'm just kind of holding out, waiting to see what comes next. You know, I'm talking to my brother, we're talking about doing some remote recording with each other and, um, maybe even doing a distance concert from his backyard or, or, you know, just trying to figure out ways to keep busy in the interim and, you know, see what, what comes down the pike, you know? Yeah. But, but it's definitely... Definitely a strange time, you know. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's just so bizarre because you can't make any plans. You know, I mean, it's 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 just kind of like the the world for musicians stopped. I mean, you know, I, obviously yeah. I, for me, you know, no gigs. I've been doing a little bit of studio stuff, but even that's yeah different and weird. It's you know, it, there's no live cutting happening on the studio floor. You know, it's Hey, I need you to come in and play along to this, you know, scratch acoustic track with a click and then I'll right. have the, the the drums and then we'll get, you know, the bass player in and he'll put his part down. So it's it, it's a little bit different, you know, in that when you even go to the studio, it's you and an engineer. There's nobody else there. Right. Right. You know, so I mean, it's just it's just weird, you know. It's definitely weird. Yeah. And you know, like, you know, right before lockdown, I was, I was, I was doing, I was, we were getting ready to do a month long residency with a really great Americana artist from Nashville, guy named Brian Wright. And he was just, you know, in the middle of putting out his record and we were going to play every Thursday night at this cool bar up here in Madison called D's. It's got a really hip following and a cool place. And, and then we got hit with a tornado. But the yeah. first gig of that series turned into a tornado release benefit, you know, and, and his, he ended up, it became like a, a multi band, you know, multi performer night. He kind of donated the night for everybody to get up and do some stuff for this benefit. And then, you know, and then after that, it was like, that was it. It was like, we went into lockdown and I just feel sorry for people like him or other people who are just in the middle of putting something out or just getting something going. And then having to like, you know, get pushed back again, you know, it's just, it's, it's really, it's, it's really frustrating. You know I mean? And, and everybody, you know, I'm, it's for everybody. You know, yeah. it's like, I feel sorry for the younger drummers who were just about to get their break, who were just about to leave for a tour, who were just about to do a studio thing that got canceled. You know, it's like, I feel sorry for the young songwriters or singers who were just about to get a cut that didn't happen. And, or, you know, and, you know, obviously, I mean, it's not so much, uh, it's not so, so important for myself at this point, because I'm already past the point of it being an issue, but, you know, 
there, you know, youth is, is, is part of the game in the business, you know? And so for every, for every minute that you're not doing it is, is a minute lost in your career, you know? And so, yeah, well, I, I feel I, sorry for the younger people for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I started going gray at a very early age and, and I remember in one particular situation where I had done some, some demos with a, a young promising artist who's doing great things now, but, um, you know, part of that management team was like, do, do you think the drummer would dye his hair? And I was just like, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, no gig is worth a box of just for men for me. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know, but, but you're right. I mean, I, that, that youth is, you know, you got to build those early years. You, you've got to start building a career to get it snowballing because, you know, I mean, I, I understand, you know, as a, a you know, mid 40s guy, I'm not going to get my first tour now. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, and you never know. But yeah, you know, I'm with you. Yeah, I mean, I just and that's OK, because, you know, I've got a mortgage and, you know, a car payment and <laughs> you know what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah. But totally. Um, I, you know, I, I just think if it's, if it comes down to, uh, you know, a 45 year old guy or a 25 year old guy, most artists are going to pick the 25 year old guy if everything else is equal. You know, I mean, that's just my, my opinion. I, you know, I, I don't have any empirical data to back it up, but that is a very important point that you made the younger artists that were just kind of getting some momentum going that has all halted now for them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, imagine, you know, it's like, I don't know, I mean, I'm, I know you can imagine it, but it's just like the, the, the crusher of like, well, now you're going to have to wait pretty much like a year before you can really get back, if we get back, get back to what we thought it was going to be. And then who knows what the system's going to look like? Who knows what venues are going to be left? Who knows what, yeah, I mean, it's, it's frustrating, you know? Yeah. And But the thing is, you know, about music too, though, like, you know, like one of the things that kind of, you know, if I, if I can digress for just a minute, you know, it's like from my personal experience, like, you know, I, I, I look at things from a, from a, and have fortunately since I was in my twenties from a, kind of a Joseph Campbellian sense of like, you know, you know, if you're paying attention, life will kind of take you on, on a ride, take you on a journey, you know? And, and for me, the drums and, and music was, was an invitation into a whole other world, a whole other, a whole other way of living that was something that, I, you know, I, I, I couldn't have dreamed of as a kid, you know, like I, I didn't know anybody in the music business growing up. There was one guy across the street from my dad's deli who, he ran his dad's liquor store and back in the seventies, he had a prog rock band that toured Japan and put a record out and had a little bit of success. And my dad would be like, you need to talk to him, you know, and, and you'd go to talk to him and he'd, he'd just be the most depressing <laughs> conversation you ever had, <laughs> you know, and, and, of and, course. and so, you know, but, but, you know, but once, once, you know, once you make the, once you make the decision to kind of get into it, it kind of takes you, you know, and, 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 and it's all the other stuff that happens on the side. It's everything else on the journey that's important. You know, it's like the John Lennon thing, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. It's like, you know, you know, all the things, you know, like my brother and I, when we had our band, we thought we were going to, you know, get this big record deal. We had big, you know, there's people 
talking about bidding wars and all this stuff. And, you know, we were so sure we were, we're going to be, you know, we're going to be the next big thing. And, you know, and of course that doesn't happen. And, you know, but, but by, but by proxy, by being in the mix, by being in it and that, the, and that the music has taken that journey step. It's like, then all of a sudden things start splinter off. It's like, Hey man, you been able to do this. You, you know, and you find yourself just being guided to the next thing, you know, and, and somehow, you know, that becomes the constant that carries it through, you know, and, and, you know, there are other people in town with way more success than I'll ever know, you know, and, and, you know, and there's other people in town who may never get to scratch the surface, you know, and I'm just grateful that I've been able to be a part of it and still be in the mix, you know, and, and that music is still part of my life, you know, even at this point, you know? Yeah. Well, man, that's such a great point. You know, I mean, I, I remember, you know, coming through my career, you know, the, the, the band that almost made it right. I mean, everybody's got one of those stories, you know, I mean, you know, we thought, Oh, all we need to do is get a a, a record deal and then our problems will be over. And, and that never, never really happened for us. And now I thank God every day that it didn't because that's, you know, that's typically when the problems start is when you owe somebody else money. Um, you know, and I, you know, at that time, you know, we were 21, 22 year old kids. Had they sent us to Europe on a, you know, eight week tour, somebody may have come home in a box. I mean, we were, <laughs> we were just out of control. You, you know what I mean? So, sure. Um, but those life experiences, the more you can add those up, the 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 more grateful you become for every opportunity. And I, I think that's exactly what you just said. I think, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. I mean, look at look at your. You know, I mean, I don't know terribly much about your detailed story, but you know, look at your look at what it's opened up for you, you know, this podcast and, you know, you're providing a service to people and that, that's something that came out of your journey, you know, that's that's a, that's a byproduct of being in this mix, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, had you, you know, held a gun to my head when I was 21 years old or or however old, whatever age and said, Hey, you know, you're going to have Peter Erskine on a podcast and you're, you're going to be hosting Peter Erskine or Bill Stewart or Marco Miniman or any of those huge names, uh, you know, Fred sure. Eltringham, you know, Matt Chamberlain. But, I, you know, the list goes on and on. I would have said you were nuts. You know, you know what I mean? It was like, th- 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 yeah. those guys don't have time for me. Um, you know, but this is just part of my journey, you know, and we're all in this journey together. And that's one of the cool things about the drumming community, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but, you know, and I'm not pointing fingers at, you know, guitarists or piano players, but drummers have this, you know, really fraternal thing about us. Like, you know, I sent you an email and said, Hey man, I would love to interview you for this podcast. The response, absolutely. When do we do it? You know what I mean? It's yeah. I I just think our community is all about helping one another, and there's not that same cutthroat mentality of well, you know, I've got to screw Mark over so that I can have an angle on this gig. You know, it just we just don't do that. Totally, totally. Well, and and even in in a weird, you know, symbolic sense, you know, the drummers being sort of the, the 
the shaman or the, the you know the timekeepers you know it's like we're we're more service oriented than than the rest of the people in the band you know it's like everybody else can have a more personal agenda but the drummer has to play for everybody else you know it's it's not just for your own self you know and 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 in a way i think that's what you're talking about that's what brings that brotherhood i mean it's like rhythm is something innate you know and yet those who tap into it 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 kind of i don't know there's a spiritual thing to it you know that I, i don't know Maybe I'm just riffing on. No, man, I I think you're I can't put it into words either. But, you know, I mean, I can count on one hand the drummers that I've met that I thought, man, that guy's a jerk or that girl's a jerk. You know what I mean? It's very few and far between. Most of the time, we're very giving of our time because, in a sense, that's what we do every day. We're giving time to other musicians, you know, that's right. Um, so I, I I don't know, but, but I think, I think you're onto something there. Um, and look, man, this has been just a fantastic conversation and I would love to have you back sometime because I mean, I think we could, you know, delve into 37 other topics and go for an (laughs) hour, but, um, you know, as is the tradition, you've already offered up a ton of great advice, but you know, we always ask all our guests for a good piece of advice what would you put out there into the universe for other drummers? Well, I mean, it's pretty cliche, but I think the most important thing is to just, you know, to pay attention to what's actually happening, pay attention to the moment, you know, whatever the song is, whatever's happening, be the right part for that and no more, you know, and no less, you know, like no matter how, no matter how much chops you have, no matter how much, you know, gospel chops you can show off. That's not really what, what it's about unless it is about that, you know, but in, but in the most part, it's finding, finding a way to support what is, what is happening in the moment, whatever music is at hand. So figure out the best way to, to be able to adapt to all the situations that get thrown at you to, to figure out the right approach in the situation, you know, I mean, I just did a, I just did a, one of the, one of the remote sessions I just did, you know, I ran into something that really kind of confused me because, you know, I've spent a long time trying to, trying to figure out, like, you know, to, to, to really kind of be about economy, you know, what, take out all the stuff that's not needed, you know, like, and this is a lifetime of work. And I was just trying, well, that doesn't need to be there. That, that beat doesn't need to be there. That doesn't need to be there. Take that out, you know, and try to just get to the essence of it, you know, leave space. And so I was doing the session and, and the, the, the artist asked me for more cymbal crashes, like, almost at it, just about every downbeat. And I was like, <laughs> really? Because this goes against my entire philosophy. And yet, <laughs> but if this is what you want, I'll give it to you, you know? Yeah. I mean, and and so I, I would just say, like, just pay attention to, to what's at hand and try to, like a method actor, bring what's needed for that moment, you know? Yeah, man, that's that's really good advice. And, you know, to, to use an analogy from your career, you know, you grew up listening to Neil and Rush. You probably weren't pulling out, you know, the intro of Spirit to Radio on the Kelly Willis sessions or the Katie Lang <laughs> sessions. You know, that that's that's not going to fit here. Right. I mean, that's the same thing. Totally, totally. And I've known guys who 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 just I don't know, they couldn't get that 
they couldn't get past that, you know, that, <laughs> you know, they'd be putting in 30 second notes in, a, in an Americana song and it's just like, no, that's not, you know, the, the party shuffle doesn't work against that. You know, there's no need to go there. You know, it's just, you know, we, you know, it's not about showing what you can do. It's about doing what you can to support what is at hand. You know, it's like, you can show them what you can do on a different gig, on a jazz gig or whatever, but it's like, whatever, whatever the moment is, that's what you're needed for, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, for me, you know, the epiphany came in my thirties and, and I can't even remember exactly where I was, but I just remember the thought coming into my frontal lobe that man, it's not about the notes I'm playing. It's about the notes I'm not playing, you know, and when that, you know, sunk in, like my phone got a whole lot busier for sessions. I mean, it's just, you know, if you can rein it in and and support the artist and the song, man, you're going to work a whole lot more. So that's some great advice, Mark. Thank you for that. No problem. Yeah, man. So, well, listen, um, real quick before we let you go. Uh, if folks out there are, are wanting to connect with you, where, you know, all your socials, how, how can people, you know, follow you and, and get in touch if they have questions? Yeah. So unfortunately my website is a mess and um, it's, I, I feel even guilty about it because I, I, I was a web designer for a few years on the side as well, but, uh, but, but does any drummer really have a great website? I mean, I know I struggle with it. So, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not going to blame you, know, you for that. Yeah, I, I just, and it was, you know, I was, I had, I had one built and then I got like, well, you know, it's like, this just seems like too much. And I was going to strip it down and make it simpler. And at the time it was like this rush for, you know, all these drummers to like really over promote themselves. And, and I just didn't want to be that. I just, it, there was something cringy about that and I just let it go. But so anyway, the easiest way for anybody is, is Facebook, Mark Pazapia, it's Mark with a C. Uh, and, uh, you know, or Instagram, mark.pazapia. And, uh, I am on LinkedIn, but again, terrible. My, my, my bio is is ancient at this point and there's, (laughs) I haven't kept up with keeping that up, but, um, but yeah, you know, I'm on, I'm on the traditional socials for sure. And that's probably the best way for anybody to reach me. Fantastic. Well, again, man, thank you so much for such a great hang and we'll have you back anytime. So, you know, when, you know, as I said, when the end of the world is over, you know, and you're, (laughs) you know, back out there working and you got some new stuff going, drop me a note, let me know, and we'll have you back. I'd love that. Thank you, Jamie. You're welcome, brother. Hey man, thanks so much for your time and we'll talk to you real soon, Mark. All right, great. Thank you so much, Jamie. It's, it's been a pleasure. Uh, my, my pleasure uh, only, so thanks. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> okay, thanks, man. All right, bye. All right, everybody. That's going to wrap up episode 110 of The Drum Shuffle. Thank you guys and girls so much for tuning in. We simply can't do this show without each and every one of you listening and streaming and downloading our show 
every single week. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Hey, uh, as always, I'm going to ask you, hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you use to listen to the Drum Shuffle podcast. We really, really appreciate it when you do that. And we have so many great guests coming up here over the next few weeks. You're not going to want to miss those. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Harry Myrie. Uh, Harry is just a phenomenal drummer um, and has a great YouTube channel. Um, I I think I'm safe in saying that Harry doesn't take himself too seriously. He is super funny. Uh, So if you're not familiar with Harry, check out his YouTube channel. He's got some great stuff. Uh, You know, a day in the life of a session musician, a day in the life of a touring musician. And it's kind of a funny take on how he makes his living as a professional drummer. It's really good stuff. So check that out. He's going to be joining us next week for what I think was just a fantastic interview. Many thanks to Mark Pazapia for being our guest today. Uh, In two weeks time, I'm going to be joined by Danny Gottlieb, who's just another legendary drummer. We've just got so many cool things coming up. I don't want you to miss any of those. As always, we answer every single email we get here. Uh, Our email address is thedrumshufflepodcast at gmail.com. Send us an email. We will respond. Give us uh, some suggestions for folks that we should have as a guest. Tell us what you love about the show. Heck, tell me what sucks about the show. Uh, I, I get so much great feedback from all of you. I welcome it. Send us an email uh, and we will get back to you. Of course, our web address is thedrumshuffle.com and you can always find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. Everybody have a great week out there and until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. Cheers, everybody.